Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. Let me go ahead and read this for us. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long rows and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of years ago, uh, during our Sunday school class, uh, someone was sharing about their visit to Paris. I don't know if you recall this. Um, how she shared how disappointing it was for her. I don't know if you remember that. Um, it wasn't very clean. It was uh, way too crowded. The people weren't all that friendly. Food was kind of below expectations. And we were all, the rest of us were sort of going, surely not Paris. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the most romantic city in the world, the, the, the hottest spot in Europe, everyone wants to visit one day. And we were all kind of shocked by the, the revelation. That it's not what we expected. Well, what was the difference between uh, her and the rest of us? She was there. And, and she came to face the reality called Paris. And, uh, and the discomfort, all the discomfort that she felt proves that she was actually there. Whereas for us, those of us who weren't bothered at all by Paris who have a lot of romantic thoughts about Paris, feel very comfortable about one day visiting Paris. Why do we feel that way? Because we were never there in person. We never felt those discomforts and we never conflicted with the city of Paris and the people of Paris, right? Now, as you look into the Gospels and as you reach uh, this later part in our, in our series in the Gospel of Mark, what you will find more and more is that Jesus, as you encounter the real Jesus, He's going to bring you a lot of discomfort. Um, why? Because you're re- really encountering the real Jesus. If you feel no discomfort whatsoever, as you come to study Jesus more and more over time, and he somehow fits perfectly into your outlook on life, he doesn't correct you in any way, doesn't, doesn't uh, challenge your worldview in any way, chances are you're not really encountering the real Jesus, but a Jesus of your own making. How do you know that you're really coming to know the real Jesus if he's starting to cause a lot of discomfort in your life? If he's starting to conflict with your current outlook on life, just as he has done for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees who are the religious conservatives, the Sadducees who are the progressive sort of secularists who deny the afterlife, who deny the supernatural. Jesus confronted both of them. He argued with both of them. As if to say, uh, you cannot be perfectly aligned with this camp and identify perfectly with me. If you're going to encounter the real me, uh, where, whatever spec, wherever, you are, wherever you are on the spectrum, 
and wherever you are in your ideology, Jesus will correct you. Uh, you will have to come out of your comfort zone to align with him. And you, you're definitely, definitely going to feel that from our passage today, a good measure of discomfort. But what I'm telling you is, take heart if that happens, because that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Uh, that means you're encountering the real Jesus and not a Jesus of our own cultural making, one that we just find very comfortable and uh, not challenging at all. Because that would mean that we're only encountering a Jesus of our own making and not the real Jesus of the Gospels. Well, how does Jesus bring the audience in our story today into a real encounter with him? Three things he brings to our attention. A reasoning, a reminder, and a response. A reasoning, a reminder, and a response. So let's unpack these one at a time, starting with a reasoning that Jesus brings to the audience. He, he starts off this way. He asks this question in verse 35. He asks, how can the scribes say that the Christ is a son of David? How can the scribes say that the Christ is a son of David? Now, here's what Jesus means by that. The scribes, the teachers of the law, basically, had always taught that the Messiah who would come one day would be a descendant of David, a physical descendant of David. Okay? And the prophets have been so clear about that, from Isaiah to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. They've been always saying that the Messiah who's going to come and be this king of kings, the Lord of lords, is going to be a descendant of David. That was commonly just understood among Israelites. It was taken for granted. It's going to be a son of David. But here's what they also taught. And that is, this son of David will merely be a son of David. Meaning a physical descendant of David, nothing more. Okay? So this is going to be some military leader like David himself who's going to come and take the throne like David and overthrow their oppressors, in this case, the Romans. Okay, that's the, that was a prevalent, dominant understanding of Messiah during their time. Son of David, human, common king, and military leader who's going to have freedom from their Roman oppressors. Now, look at what Jesus does. He continues to reason with them from verse 36 and 37, where he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, Psalm by David, where David makes this prophetic statement about the Messiah. Here's what, here's what he says. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Okay. Do you follow Jesus' reasoning here? If the Messiah who is to come is no greater than David, is merely a son of David, then how can David call him my Lord instead of just my son? Like, I, I would call my son a lot of things. Like Owen, buddy, son, or his Korean name, Onyu. And at times, jokingly, dude. But never would I call him my Lord. Right? You're serial. Like, I would never call him my Lord. But here's David doing just that. Calling not just his son, but his great-great-great-great-grandson, my Lord. Now, our passage, which was written in the Greek originally... It simply translates this Hebrew word for Lord from Psalm 110 using the Greek word kurios. That's the word Lord. That's why the word Lord is written the same way in the English Bible. L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D. But the quoted passage originally written in the Hebrew, if you look at the Hebrew manuscripts, you find that the first Lord 
is all caps. It's translated all caps. Why? Because that Hebrew word is Yahweh. Okay? Or in Jewish terms, Yodei Babe. They don't, they don't say the whole word, but it's Yahweh. It's the, name of, it's the very name of God. And the second word, Lord, is spelled capital L-O-R-D, which is the Hebrew word Adonai. So what David says literally in the Hebrew is, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. Okay. So what's David saying there? This Messiah, this son of David, is not merely my son, not merely a Lord with a little L, not merely a king with a little K, but Adonai, the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, the Messiah is not merely the son of David, but also the son of God. See, Jesus' reasoning is now beginning to totally shift their paradigm because they were thinking, or the Israelites were thinking, okay, the son of David who's gonna be the Messiah is just gonna be this political, nationalistic king who's gonna come and restore the nation of Israel, and that's it, right? It was kind of confined to their, their immediate socio-political context. That's all they thought about the Messiah, limited to their present-day troubles and woes. Turns out it's much bigger than that. Jesus is showing them that. The Messiah is not just the son of David like you guys thought. He's not just going to restore his father's earthly kingdom, rule with political might. He's not just here for the kingdom of Israel. He's not here to rule for David. He's going to, he's going to come here and rule over David. Lord over David and the rest of the world. Why? Because he is Adonai, the Lord, the creator of the world, the ruler of the world. Here's, a, here's the same reasoning perhaps applied to us. Do we understand this about why Jesus came into this world? Not merely to solve our present day troubles. Not merely to deal with our most pressing socio-political economic problems of our day. Not to deal with our Roman oppressors, whatever they are in our context. Or simply just to help us get through our day. Make our lives just a little bit easier by his power. Because if we were to think that, we would be missing the real Jesus just like the Israelites here. We're missing the real Jesus. We're missing Adonai. We're only looking at the physical son of David. We're missing Adonai. So we have to reason with Jesus here. How can this Messiah be merely a son of David who serves David's kingdom and furthers David's agenda and helps David get through his day, helps David live an easier life, a healthier, happier, wealthier life, if David calls him my Lord. That's Jesus' logic here. That's his reasoning. If this Messiah is serving David's agenda, how can David call him my Lord? If David calls him my Lord, then clearly David is here to serve his agenda, not the other way around. That's the rhetoric behind the force of this question, the reasoning behind this question. Are you sure you're getting the real Messiah? Not a Messiah of your own making who's here to simply be your consultant, your assistant to help you live your life better. Are you sure that your Messiah is here not to build your kingdom, but the eternal kingdom of Yahweh, which is why Yahweh sat him at his right hand? See, this is when you start beginning, or you feel it, don't you feel the discomfort, don't you already? This is when you're starting to encounter the real Jesus, not the Jesus of your own cultural making. It's when you feel the force of this reasoning here. 
The Messiah is not here to serve your agenda and further your kingdom, whether that kingdom is a career-oriented kingdom, a money-oriented kingdom, a pleasure-oriented kingdom, a relational family, romance-oriented kingdom. He is not here to build that for you. You're here to build his kingdom, the kingdom of Yahweh. Jesus is reasoning with them from the scriptures about who this Lord truly is. He is Adonai, enthroned on the throne of God by Yahweh himself. He is Adonai. And and all of this really is reminding his audience once again of something that he's been teaching and preaching all throughout his ministry, and that is the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. And that's the second point. There's a reminder here. And and I want to break this reminder into two parts, a reminder of the what and the how. The what and the how. He says here in verse 38, Beware, watch out, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. In other words, look out for the scribes, the teachers of the law who go after appearance, who go after status, go after recognition, material comfort, while forgetting the widows, which by the way represent the poorest of the social class, the poorest of the poor, and out of pretense lead an excessively religious life. Going to synagogues all the time and praying really long prayers. That word pretense means a false reason or a fake motive. And this is Jesus reminding us of something he had already taught us in Mark chapter 7. You recall in Mark chapter 7 verse 6, Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And a few verses down he says, It's not what's on the surface that makes someone unclean or defiles a person. It's what's underneath that defiles the person. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is basically saying this. He's saying, look out for the scribes who are all about the externals and never focus on the internal. They look at the external things. They focus on the external things. They, make, they embellish the external things. Never address the true motives of their heart. What's underneath the pretense, in other words. We are just talking about motives this um, Sunday morning during Sunday school. And one thing we learned is that when it comes to understanding our true selves, we really have to understand our motives. And the way we understand our motives, the way we approach our motives, feels a lot like peeling the layers of an onion because you feel like there's just another layer and another layer and another layer underneath that. So one way to go about it is first you look at your circumstances and how your circumstances lead to your word and deed. And from your word and deed, you peel away another layer where you find your surface motive and you peel another layer from that and you find underneath your surface motive there's a deeper motive and you peel another layer from there you find there's the deepest motive underneath all of that. A lot of unpeeling. So here's an example just to put some skin to that. The Israelites. 
they run into some very difficult circumstances, right? In the desert, in the wilderness. And that brings about the word and deed, the complaining and the grumbling. Where the circumstances lead to the word and deed, complaining and the grumbling. And that reveals their surface motive. What's the surface motive? On the surface, they're just going after security, material comfort, material pleasures, and perhaps even status, wanting to be safe and secure as they were back in Egypt. And the surface motive, once again, reveals another layer, a deeper motive, which is an entitlement to be served rather than serving and meeting others' needs. I'm I'm here to be served. I'm here to have my needs met, not to meet the needs of others. And underneath that, there's there's the deepest motive, the bottom of their hearts, where their self is essentially their own Lord and not God. So the complaining and the grumbling, on the surface it seems like they're simply grumbling and complaining about their situation and their circumstances, but underneath, at the very bottom, they're actually complaining and grumbling against the Lord. You're not good enough a Lord. I can be a better Lord. And so Moses literally says in Exodus 16:8, you are not grumbling against us, meaning Moses and Aaron. You are grumbling against the Lord. You're not getting your way and you have a problem with God's way. You don't like this plan, you have a problem with God's plan. You don't like this timing, you have a problem with God's timing. You're complaining and grumbling against God. Now, fast forward to our passage today, what do we see? Another group of Israelites in a difficult circumstance. They're under Roman oppression, right? And that leads to their grumbling and complaining against Jesus. That's their word and deed. They're challenging Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus in his saying. And that reveals their, perhaps their surface motive, which is they want political freedom. They want political status. They want security. They want material comfort. They want to sit in the best seats and wear the long robes. They want to comfort themselves. Okay? But that's a pretense. Pretense to be, to be reverent towards God, to be teaching the word of God when they're not really following the word of God themselves. And underneath that lies their deepest motive, which is to place themselves, just like the Israelites did in the desert, to place themselves on the throne rather than God himself. Jesus is saying, beware of this. Beware of this because you're in danger of the same, living under the same pretense of being for God when in reality you are against him and you're really for yourself. Your problem, therefore, is not, right, on the surface. Your problem is not with your circumstances. What you're grumbling against, what you're complaining about, what you're worried about, what you're anxious about, what you're perhaps angry about, frustrated about, is not really, ultimately, with the surface things. It's all against, all towards God. Now, Why is this reminder important? Because if this is the case, if this is our problem, if underneath all of our circumstantial problems and surface motives we're against God, then surely the Messiah who's going to come and save his people are not just going to save them from their circumstances. The reason the Messiah would come to really save us would be so that we would have a new heart, not a new set of circumstances. He's here to give us a new heart. He is here to 
to undo this cosmic and universal effect of sin in our hearts. The sin that's been tearing humanity apart from God ever since the beginning, causing them to spiral out of God's purpose and God's design for us. He came to put our sins to death. That's why he came. That's the what. How? How did he do this? How does he plan on doing this? By rising to the right hand of God, to the throne of God. But of course that means if he's going to ascend, he must first first descend. And he's told us time and time again, by chapter 10, he's told us not once, not twice, but three times that he's going to do that. How? By being delivered over to the scribes, the priests, the Pharisees, to be condemned by them, being mocked by them, being flogged and then killed, and after three days rise again. That's how. That's how he's going to rise again and take his throne, by dying on the cross. Jesus is reminding them again, just why? Why does the Messiah have to come and die? Why does he have to take the cross? See, if the Son of God doesn't have to come and take the cross if all we needed were these things on the surface to change. If we were simply going after the things that the scribes were going after, a better robe, a better seat, a better recognition, better status, better comfort in life, better, a better life, we would not Jesus and his cross, if that's all we needed. He, Jesus, all Jesus had to do was just snap his finger, right? And we would have a good life, just like that, like a genie. He, would just, he can just give that to us. The Son of God wouldn't have had to come and die on the cross if our problems were merely on the surface. So don't be like the scribes who are trying to just fix their lives on the surface and live with this pretense that all is well underneath. He's reminding us that the Messiah came to defeat sin itself and its greatest weapon, death. That was Jesus' mission. Don't forget the real mission. Don't forget the heart of the gospel. Jesus didn't come to establish this physical kingdom by defeating your physical enemies and restoring a physical set of circumstances for you. He came to die on the cross to get rid of the sickness that's in your heart. The sickness in your heart that says, I will be my own Lord. I will be my own Adonai. I will be my own king. He he came to conquer your heart. To subdue you at the heart. To remove the sin that's taken root in your heart. That's taken root in our children's hearts and our children's children's hearts. He came to die for that. That was his mission. And I love how Jesus brings all this to reminder with a single verse. By reciting a passage of scripture, Psalm 110 verse 1. Takes them back to the scriptures and reveals to them his true mission, his true identity, our true selves, our true predicament things that he's been talking about, these these 12 chapters of Mark. Don't forget, I'm not here to change your external circumstances. That is not my mission. I'm not here to make your life on earth just a little bit easier. That is not my mission. I'm here to defeat your sin. I'm here to defeat death and rise to the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh. You know, Christians are not, we're not against uh, reasoning and, and rationally defending the, the Christian faith. There, there are a lot of rational arguments for the validity of Christianity and good answers to its objections. And I'm open to sitting down with any one of you and going over that over coffee. I'd love to do that with you. But the argument that Jesus uses here is not 
Why not those arguments? Jesus simply takes us to the scriptures. And I think that's the best argument, really. Arguing from the scripture itself. Why? Here's why. Because when you look at the scriptures, we're reminded of the deepest truth, the truth of our hearts, that no scientific measurement can ever give us. You cannot go to any lab in anywhere in the world and somehow print a data sheet that's going to convince you of the wickedness of your own heart, the sinfulness of your own heart. It's the Bible that reveals us to, to us that truth of who we are. The truth that's beneath all the, all the surface motives. When you go to the scriptures and you're reminded of what actually you've known all along, the truth of your heart, that's when you begin to believe. That's when you feel this truthfulness piercing through the circumstances, the surface motives, even the deeper motives, to the deepest motive where you are not right with God. You are not reconciled with Him. You are rebelling against Him. He is not your Lord. You are your own Lord. It's the scriptures that can pierce through all those layers and reveal that to you. And show us that because we were sitting on our own throne, right, beneath that thick curtain of our motives, we're sitting on our own throne, that's, and that's the source of all our troubles, all our angst, all our conflicts, all our restlessness, our fears, and our anxieties. Because we're on the throne, not the Lord. So go to the scriptures. Take it at its word. And I know some of you might be skeptical of this approach to the Bible. You might be going, wait, that sounds like you're just telling me I should believe what the Bible says because the Bible tells me so. Aren't you just engaging in circular reasoning there? And, and let me just say, that, say to that, in a sense, I am. Uh, and, and, and with all due respect, so is everyone else. Uh, because saying, I believe the Bible because the Bible tells me so, so the Bible, because the Bible speaks the truth to my heart, that is just as circular as any skeptic, any secular person saying, I believe what my brain thinks is reasonable, and evidential because my brain tells me they are reasonable and evidential. And if, you, if I were to press you there and say, okay, your brain tells you what's reasonable, but what makes you trust your brain to be infallible and without error? And they might say, well, my brain is able to process you know, data and logic and figure out what is true, what is false, what is evidence, what is not. And I would say simply to that, okay, that sounds a lot like you're saying you trust what your brain is telling you because your brain tells you your brain is trustworthy. Uh, to me, that's just, just as circular as me saying, I believe the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. And philosophers actually have a term for that. It's called epistemic circularity. Uh, we've, they figured out that um, at some point, we all, religious or not, atheist or, or, or Christian, we all fall back on some, sort of, some source of belief as our ultimate belief. And we fall back on it without evidence, without, without reasoning. We just simply take it by faith. We have this, this, because it tells me so kind of circularity at some point. We all do. So all that to say, uh, don't worry. You're not being any less rational than anyone else by simply going to the Bible and taking it at its word. And see, go to the Bible and see if there might be a better ultimate belief for you than the one that you've been leaning on all this time. You just might find an ultimate belief that will actually deal with the biggest, most cosmic and universal problem that you face. An ultimate belief that can actually take away your sin. 
an ultimate belief that will even die for you on the cross. An ultimate belief who loves you and is worthy, actually worthy of being on the throne of your life, worthy of being your Lord and being your King. And when you encounter him, he will bring you to your knees and that's how you will respond. So in closing, I think what Jesus gives us is an example, an example of what this response to this king would look like. If we were to ultimately fall back on Jesus as our Lord, as our ultimate source of belief, what would that response look like? And that's the story of the widow. And, and it's not just a good example in offering, right? Like it says here, uh, a poor widow came in and it says, um, Jesus was watching, verse 41, he was watching the people putting money into the offering box, right? If I was in a different, maybe, denomination or a different kind of church, I might be like, hey, Jesus is watching how much you're putting in the offering box. Make sure you give a lot, right? But we're not going to do that here. Uh, We're not that kind of a church. And that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not Jesus is watching you put a lot of money in the offering box. Because she comes, puts in two small copper coins, Smallest coin in circulation during this time. Barely right, value, you know, valuing a penny. It's so insignificant. This cannot be anything but a gesture. But it's the, it's the gesture that Jesus compliments. It's the one that he commends. So what, is this, what does this gesture mean? He explains. He calls his disciples over, points out this poor widow, and he says, this poor widow has put in more money in God's eyes than anyone else, than any of these rich guys. Why? Because everybody was giving out of their abundance. Out of their abundance. Meaning, having given, they're not lacking in anything. Having given, nothing has really changed. Having given, they haven't really made a sacrifice. The quality of their lives haven't changed one bit, having given. They're not shopping at cheaper stores because they gave. They're not eating out less because they gave. They're not making any significant sacrifice here. They're simply giving out of their abundance. They're maintaining, in other words, all the control they want over their money and how they live their lives according to that wealth and keeping their sense of having enough. They're only giving to the extent that they keep the sense of having enough. They still control all that they want to afford, all that they want to buy, all the things they want to enjoy in life. And that's not a real offering. That's not a real cost to you. That's not a real sacrifice to you. But this woman, she gave up what little control she had remaining in her life, the two little copper coins. And that is a gesture saying this, she gave her whole life. She's giving her whole life to the Lord. She's surrendering all of her control. Why? Because God, this God, this Yahweh, this Adonai is on her throne. And when, when he's actually on your throne, and you're not on your own throne, and you let go of control, and you let your king control your life, this is what it looks like. You, you surrender everything. And it's not determined by the quantity, but the quality of your heart. This is what trusting in your Lord looks like. It looks like giving God total control, committing your whole life to him. You know how Jesus said the, the rich man will have has a hard time getting into the kingdom of God as a camel getting through the eye of a needle. Remember that? Uh, Frederick Bauchner said this about that analogy. Quote, Surely that is why in Jesus' sad joke, I like that he causes a sad joke, 
The rich man has as hard a time getting into paradise as a camel because with his credit card in his pocket, the rich man is so effective at getting for himself everything he needs that he does not see that what he needs more than anything else in the world can only have, be had as a gift. He does not see that the one thing a clenched fist cannot do is accept, even from a good God, a helping hand. Why do we want control? Why do we want to control our lives so much and are, are reluctant to surrender control to God? Because our deepest motive, at the very deepest place in our hearts, is this distrust of God, that God is indeed good, that he has my best interest at heart, that he will make all things work for the good of those who love him. We, so therefore, we clench our fists and refuse his help, we refuse his total control. We hold on to our, our own control over our own lives, even if that means it's two copper coins. We hold on to our control and we bind to the lie that God will only help me to the extent that I help myself. When in fact, God helps those who confess that they're helpless. Those who surrender their control over their helpless lives over to Jesus, over to God, those are the ones that God draws near to. Because that is when the free gift of God enters our lives. The free gift of His control, the free gift of His grace, the free gift of His love, of His reign, and all of, all of His promises enter our lives. And it comes to us in the form of a person. And a poor person at that. A poor man who gave up his all, who gave up even his life, who gave up control over his throne so that you and I can be saved. This is why David's Lord became the son of David. To help us in our helplessness. So according to Jesus, the widow's response here is the perfect response to this gift of salvation. Surrendering all control. Falling back on this Adonai as her only hope. As her only way to be saved. What is this calling us to do then? How are we to respond? I think, simply put, it's calling you and me to loosen our, our clenched fists. What, what are you holding on to right now? What are you saying, God, I must have this. It must go this way. Or my life will not have meaning. I will not be happy. I will not be fulfilled. I must have this. What is that? What is this? Right. The invitation here is to let go of that and place instead your hand in God's hand, your helpless hand in his powerful and mighty hand. And you'll have him. You will have him. And he's all that you need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us the gospel. We thank you for reasoning with us even though we are slow to come to understanding. And I pray that you will lead us to this understanding of the true gospel, of the true identity of your son. That he has come not to fulfill a kingdom of man, but the kingdom of Yahweh. And he's inviting all those who put their trust in him to follow him into this kingdom, to serve this kingdom, to, to represent this kingdom in this world. God, I do pray that for our church, for all those who hear this word, we will head in that direction. Falling back not on ourselves, not on our clenched fists, not on our control, but on your son, 
who has taken the throne, who has risen to life, having paid the penalty for our sins, he now sits on the throne of God and he will return to bring his kingdom down to where we are. And we believe that, we hope in that, and, and as we do, Lord, help us to live by faith. Help us to live by focusing on and fixing our eyes upon Christ, not on our hearts, not on our personal desires, not on our needs, our demands, but on Christ and his kingdom and his reign. Turn our eyes to him. Let everything else around us fade away. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.